This is episode number 243 with senior underwriter Dominic Rowe. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on the show here today. And joining us from Brisbane, Australia, we have Dominic Rowe. We had a fantastic chat today. Uh, Dominic is a senior underwriter in his role. He's professionally an actuary and he's a fellow of the Actuaries Institute of Australia, which is not an easy feat. You have to pass 12 exams enrolling statistics and other complex topics to be a member of this institute. And so today, what you will find out on this podcast, super, super exciting stuff. First of all, of course, you'll find out uh, or we will refresh on all because we have had actuaries on this podcast before, but we'll refresh on what the difference between an actuary and a data scientist is. And you'll definitely cement that in and uh, be very comfortable in understanding the differences. Um, and then in terms of the similarities between the two professions, we will have some amazing things for you today. So uh, Dominic shared one of his epic case studies of his work and we went into lots of detail. So if you're looking for a technical podcast, if you want to up your skills on modeling and how to think about models and especially in the B2C space, this is the podcast for you. Uh, we talked about how Dominic built a model. It involves uh, decision trees, random forest, geodemographic segmentation, stochastic sampling. We're going to lots of little nitty gritty details. I think this is a podcast like no other we've had before. So highly, highly recommend to tune in and follow along with us on how he built this model. It's actually two separate models in one crazy story. I think you'll love it. And then after that, towards the end of the podcast, we talked a bit more about specifically geodemographic segmentation and you'll find some interesting use cases, specifically three use cases of geodemographic segmentation in data science. And so if you've never encountered geodemographic segmentation or you've briefly worked with it before, this will be a good place to enrich your knowledge. Super pumped about this episode. Let's dive straight into it and start data sciencing. And without further ado, I bring to you Dominic Rowe, senior underwriter and actuary. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on the show because today I have Dominic Rowe calling in from Brisbane, Australia. Dominic, welcome. How are you going today? Hey, Kirill, I'm, I'm great. How are you going? Going great. It was, it was actually funny how I asked you just before the podcast. I was like, because I normally ask that question to do the audio check, the, you know, how's the weather? And then I was asking you, how's the weather in Brisbane? Where I'm, when I'm in Gold Coast, which is literally 100 kilometers away, and we have the same weather. <laughs> yeah, very rarely is it different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just have to look out the window. But it's, it's been pretty hot and as you mentioned it's very strong surf i went to the beach today in the morning and very strong powerful waves even like knee deep they like wipe you off your feet interesting yeah. it might be to do with the full moon no i think it's actually to do with a cyclone there's a cyclone uh, off uh, the coast of queensland near fiji um and yeah this is whipping up all of the waves the swell etc yeah so wow. um yeah, I think that's the main cause. But of course, yeah, I know it's a full moon at the moment as well, which makes it even more extreme. I yeah, think. the yeah. tides go up higher and lower, I think. During full moon, something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Man, well, it was really cool to catch up. So for, for our listeners, um, Dominic and I met through a common friend of ours, uh, Bill Constantinidis. Bill, huge shout out, huge thank you if you're listening to this. And uh, Bill's an executive in the uh, insurance and um, data science analytics in uh, very like a very influential person in Australia and it was very cool to 
uh, get in touch with you, Dominic. And we had an amazing chat. Remember, like last week during the coffee break, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I mean, I I, I really liked um, how you went over some of the you know the most cutting edge techniques, and yeah, were able to explain some of those uh, some of the latest trends in data science, which um, I'm not exactly up to scratch on the the very uh, the very latest uh, trends. So that's great. Thank you. And I, on my side, I really like I felt engaged. And like immersed into what you were saying when you were sharing some of your uh, recent uh, wins and case studies from from your work, I thought that was so cool, and I just had to invite you to the podcast because I want you to share that with the world. So it's going to be quite an exciting session today. Really looking forward to it. But before we get started, give us a quick rundown. So you are, um, from what I know, you're a senior underwriter. Uh, you work for Cover More Insurance. Uh, your profession is you're an actuary, so we'll go into that. What's the difference between actuary and data science and how they are, you know, what they're sharing more and more with time. And you are a fellow of the Institute of Actuaries. You have to pass a dozen or, yeah, a dozen exams to, to become a fellow of that. So it's, it's all quite, quite a, um, involved career that you have. Tell us a bit more about what exactly is you, that you do. Uh, yeah. Sure. So I suppose um, what an act, just for your listeners, a bit of background information, I suppose, because not all your listeners might have heard of an actuary before. Mm -hmm. An actuary um, is essentially, um, originally it comes from the life insurance industry, where the actuary would um, essentially create all of the life tables, which tells the insurance company how much they need to charge to insure people at different ages and mm -hmm. uh, and different genders, etc. And then around the 1970s, Actuaries moved from life insurance. They also started working in non-life insurance. So what people commonly call property casualty insurance. So that includes, um, auto insurance as well as home and contents insurance, um, as, as well as, um, you know, travel insurance, different types of insurance. And so basically, um, an actuary will, um, at the very core skill set would be probability and statistics as well as a strong financial and accounting background. But combined with that, these days in particular, actuaries are, are very um, much competent in coding, um, in um, data analysis of very large data sets, and there's an increasing overlap in the skill set between data scientists and actuaries. So building predictive models is absolutely the bread and butter of what actuaries do. So these days, actuaries um, uh, are very much in the life insurance as well as the non-life insurance, including uh, things like health insurance. Um, as well as banking and superannuation or, or pensions, as most of the world calls it. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, very interesting how that all stemmed <laughs> from actuarial sciences. And, and indeed now is sometimes it's hard to distinguish, hard to tell the difference between, uh, what's, what's the role of an actuary and what's the role of a data scientist. What, what would your definition be like? What, what's the difference between a data scientist and an actuary at this point in time? Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's a that's an interesting one. I suppose um, uh, an actuary, um, I, I, I suppose, um, needs to have the skills of a data scientist. So to me, a, a data scientist yeah, um, is a person who understands the the structure of the data, understands um, how to clean the data, um, understands many different approaches um, in terms of algorithms and and different ways of modeling both in the supervised and in a non-supervised setting mm -hmm. um, in order to get in order to understand the underlying structure of the data and build the most predictively the most powerful models um, possible mm -hmm. um, I suppose an actuary needs to know that probably not to the same depth as a, as a data scientist but the over um, the overlying considerations for an actuary are around understanding the legislation um, understanding the industry that you're in um, and understanding things like um, professional code of conduct, which says um, things like you, you need to be impartial um, in terms of when you're writing statutory reports. Um, and really, I suppose, um, putting all those things together to act in um, the best financial interests of the, of, of the company. Mm -hmm. So with, the, with an actuary and that profession, there are a lot of, um, it's actually written into the law in a lot of countries that an actuary has to sign off um, sets of rates or premium rates that are being charged by an insurance company. Mm -hmm. And the actuary has to make a formal signed declaration 
that those premium rates are correct in terms of accurately reflecting the cost of claims that are expected to be borne out of the insurance policy that the company is writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that additional layer, I, I suppose, of professional standards and legislative accountability with an actuary that a data scientist um, wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. I think I think that's a very accurate description, and I I would assume it's quite uh, it it would be quite easy to go from an actuary to a data scientist and from a data scientist to an actuary. Would would you agree, or would you say it's it's a bit more involved? In, yes, like I, yeah. I mean, I know a few actuaries that have um, gone full, um, very very deep into the into the data science world. Um, and they've, they've absolutely loved it. Um, and they love being completely free of all the statutory obligations and, you know, the boring ticking the box, um, which, um, comes with some components of actuarial work. Mm-hmm. Um, so they feel freer, um, in terms of, um, understanding the data and building models that are free of the various restrictions imposed by them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that if an, a data scientist tries to move in um, to the actuarial world, um, unless you like, um, I suppose, reading the law and understanding the various um, supervisory regulatory bodies and all the rules and regulations they have, um, you may find it a little bit, um, I suppose, um, frustrating or cumbersome that you have to learn all these rigid mm. rules and not simply concentrate on the science of building the most predictive and the most powerful algorithm or model that you can possibly build. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that um, a lot of data scientists, if they did try to move into the actuary world, they may be frustrated um, by by that additional part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I can see how see how that would happen. Uh, and tell us about you. What's what's your story? So you started as an actuary, and like your a very experienced actuary and a senior underwriter at the moment, um, a member of the Institute of Actuaries. What, where does your interest for data science come from? Yes, so I, I suppose um, I've always, um, you know, been interested in building models to predict the future, and this is what I, I really enjoyed. And it made, I suppose that's why it made sense for me to go down this path. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I've always, um, I suppose, had an abstract mind. And what's fascinated me, you know, is a as a as a boy, when you know when I used to play say chess on the computer or whatever, was mm-hmm. how the computer went about its thoughts or its rules or whatever it did in order to you know make the next move. That kind of abstract thinking has always fascinated me. Um, and so, whilst I've always liked you know mathematical and statistical analysis, and I I actually did a master's degree after I did my bachelor's degree in in statistics. Um, you know, that component of um, abstract thinking and um, going through a thought process to work out what the best thing to do is for a given objective, that that kind of problem has always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah. and that's why you decided to not, you know, like expand even further beyond your actuarial knowledge and experience into data science and see what else is available there. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And I mean, I think that all, you know, Good actuaries who enjoy learning new things should step into the data science area because you can't do the best job that you can possibly do in the world of um, insurance pricing, which is where my career has predominantly concentrated on, without understanding the more advanced types of models that are out there today. Um, And so the models that are being used by insurance companies are improving, but they're improving very, very slowly because there's a lot of inertia in the insurance industry about using and implementing more advanced models that can, say, predict conversion rates, can predict claims costs, can predict the likelihood of renewal, et cetera, like um, all these things that companies can use to maximize their profit over time. Um, Actuaries have been somewhat slower um, than data scientists in terms of, um, yeah, in in terms of, um, you know, embracing new techniques, new models. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that all good actuaries should definitely step into data science to learn more about it mm. that's very interesting because i was actually thinking that when when we met uh for for the coffee catch up last week the some of the examples that you gave me from your work were very unusual because i've uh, spoken to actuaries before and usually it's mostly like logistic regression linear regression 
you know, some mm. some kind of uh, very very um, uh, very developed, very old school. Not to say bad, but kind of like very reliable approaches that have been around for a very long time. And when we caught up, you were talking about using uh, random forest, XG boost, and you know, starting to think about deep learning. Lots of different, more innovative approaches. So what I was thinking is, uh, is there any kind of regulation in the actuarial sciences on what can and can't be used? Like in data science, you can use whatever you want as long as it gets the job done and it produces great results, like great predictions. In actuarial sciences, with all this legislation um, and regulatory framework, is there any restrictions on what you are allowed to apply, what kind of models, and what you cannot apply? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And the answer is, because I know you have an international audience, the, the answer really just depends. You know, it varies. Um, you know, within the US, it varies state by state, I believe. Within Australia, the Australian rules are very much relaxed. Um, I mean, if you're talking about a non-statutory class, so that's ordinary home and contents insurance or motor vehicle insurance, which doesn't include the bodily injury component, just the property damage, you can actually charge whatever premium you like. You are unrestricted. The only rule essentially is that you cannot collude in your pricing. So in other words, you can't go, if you're insurer A, you can't go to insurer B and say to that company, just to let you know, I'm going to be charging, you know, $350 for these car types of cars, $450 for those types of cars. And, you know, they, you can't share information in that way about pricing because then it's considered to be a cartel by the Australian mm -hmm. regulators. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, that's considered to be an extremely serious offense. Mm -hmm. Um, but anything else in terms of, um, you know, um, rating um, a particular risk by exactly where it's located, the exact longitude, latitude, elevation, and then incorporating additional factors such as what's the crime rate around that particular building that you're insuring? How close is that building to, say, the nearest police station or the nearest fire station or the nearest waterway? Um, what's the relative elevation? You know, if you take, say, the points around that point that you're insuring, um, is the water, say, for flood risk, is the water likely to inundate that particular building? All those things, um, you know, can be taken into account. The only other point that might be a little bit dubious from the point of view of the law is around things like ethnic, um, ethnic factors that are based on an individual. So if you base it on an individual's, say, last name, mm -hmm. that usually gives you a clue as to what their ethnicity is, obviously that would be inappropriate from anti-discrimination perspective. In the US, I believe, and I've never worked in the US, so hopefully uh, this is um, this is half right at least. Yeah. Um, I have been told that there's rate filings that are required. So, yeah. in other words, the insurer must give to the regulator and say these are exactly our best estimate of the correct rates, which are you know what the cost of claims are going to be, with a you know margin for expenses and profit. And then, um, so you have perfect equity between um, policyholders. So if a 20-year-old driver is um, predicted to have, have twice as many claims as a 40-year-old driver, then their premium should be, you know, twice as much. Um, it shouldn't be a factor that's any that's any different. I believe that's that's how it's commonly done mm -hmm. there, which is very very different to Australia. Mm -hmm. And uh, what about gender? Like, because when I get car insurance, for instance, one of the questions is, are you male or female? And I, like, I'm not an actuary, so I'm not sure if this is true or not, but uh, I've heard that, that how you answer to that question affects your insurance because, you know, some, um, in some forms of uh, like vehicles, uh, women or men are like seen as more risky in, in driving. What, 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 is that not discrimination? Yes, I mean, I, I think that's a really good point, and um, I, I actually don't know the answer because I believe the answer in Australia is, is going to be changing fairly soon. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just that's just what I've heard. But um, I, I believe that in the EU they've they've officially outlawed that. So in other words, if you're male, female, you have to. It, it's forced that the the premium is the same, mm -hmm. um, even though you know just on the average the females are the safer drivers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in Australia, I believe that you know that, that you can charge a different premium, but I, I may be I'm, I'm, I may be wrong there. I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Well, that's good that it's um, you know uh, things are always changing, adjusting, and um, 
yeah, we're moving forward as as a society, a whole as a whole. Um, what you mentioned there was very interesting about the um, the coordinates and the heights of uh, elevation, relative elevation, police station, fire station nearby. That's really cool, and that's like new areas that insurers can and should be exploring. That's where I, as I see it, data science actually comes in, where you are not just doing your standard. You know, you have certain features and you make your standard model. You like you look beyond. You look at what else. What else can I get? How can I combine things? And uh, that that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about our chat last week was the whole notion of geospatial. So you have quite a bit of experience in geospatial analytics. Can you tell us a bit more about that? First of all, like what is geospatial and how did you get into it? Uh yes. Yeah, so, so really, um. Because uh, geospatial statistics is, you know, anything at all that's associated with the geographical area. So it's either can be an area or an exact um, latitude, longitude, and elevation, um, X, Y, Z coordinate on the Earth. Um, and I suppose how I how I got into it, I was I was working. This is a, a fair time um, ago, but I was working with um, a person who um, he still works in the insurance industry, but who is very, very innovative and very progressive in terms of um, um, pushing his people to, to, you know, to do additional research and to find out what the best ways of you know, solving any particular problem are. And so I won't mention the company or, or the person, but basically um, the problem that we were trying to solve was how do we have all this external third-party data which um, you know, incorporates both um, areas, geospatial data um, to do with areas, so some are small areas, some are large areas, um, as well as exact X, Y, Z location um, um, geospatial data. How do we incorporate that additional information, additional external information into insurance pricing so that the prices that we charge ultimately are closer to what the um, you know, claims costs are going to be? So the claims cost in the future is obviously um, completely random. It's fortuitous, but um, it should be, you know, relatively um, predictable in terms of, um, you know, if you understand the underlying, um, all of the underlying policy and risk characteristics, you should be able to get it fairly close once you aggregate um, amongst your policyholders. And so um, I used a few, we actually tried a few different techniques in order to get the result that we wanted. Um, so random forests was um, a technique that we use. Now random forests um, is it's it's essentially um, building recursive decision trees, um, and and it's it's you what it's used for is if you believe you have high level interactions in your data. So um, if you think about um, say a, a neural a neural network um, or or say like a, a linear model. Um, if you have, um, say, no interactions whatsoever um, between your variables, so in other words, the outcome um, only depends on, you know, essentially a linear, just an ordinary linear function of your predictors, then something like a linear model or a neural network with, say, no hidden layer will be, you know, would be perfectly fine. Um, what random forest is really good at is picking up higher level interactions. So if variable A together with B in combination with C and D um, would isolate a particular segment of policyholders um, that are, say, extremely high risk. And, you know, you're able to prove that through um, through bagging, um, which is, um, you know, sampling with replacement, and you're able to prove that um, through, say, cross-validation, then um, you may be able to, you know, isolate segments that can't be easily isolated through um, many other techniques, so um, so we used random forest because um, we had a relatively large number of predictors. Mm-hmm. So pre- yeah, predictors um, all to do. So probably oh, five to six hundred predictors. Wow. Um, and and just to give your your listeners, I suppose, a little bit more of an idea of the types of predictors we had, we had things around um, unemployment. Um, we think things about wealth and income, so all the demographic factors as well as things like immigration factors, um, distances to the nearest natural features and, and nearest railway station, et cetera, et cetera, nearest airport, 
And so you get um, using all these different um, predictors um, in combination using a, a random forest, um, you, you know, you, 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 what you can do is you can build up just the geographical component of the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose the, the, the other thing, this is uh, what we've been talking about is just the geographical component of risk. So when a policyholder comes to you, what do you know about him? Let's say it's home insurance. You know what type of building you're insuring. Um, so just all of the basic, you know, what, what you have to tell your insurer. So the type of building, is it two stories? Is it three stories? How, how much do you want to insure the building for? Um, do you have locks on, on all of your external doors and, and windows? Um, do you have a security alarm? Um, is your home fully fenced? All those basic things. Mm-hmm. These are the predictors that sit over the top of that. And, and so the trickiness was, how do we take into account all of those basic policy characteristics that I just mentioned, but also at the same time build up um, geographical zones in which to um, in, w- in which to determine our insurance prices from um, from all these hundreds of uh, ex- external um, uh, factors. And so the way that we did that was um, we had. Um, what, what is called a, a GLM, so that's a, a generalized linear model, mm-hmm. where we the, the target of what we're trying to predict there is the frequency of claim. Um, so the claim frequency is being predicted by all the ordinary policy um, characteristics they have, just the ordinary risk characteristics. And then what you can do is you can get the residual effect. Um, so when you, um, um, you have your zonal effect within that model, then you take all of um, your your residuals, and once you add that to the zone effect, um, after you've fitted all your parameter estimates, that um, zone effect is um, is essentially what you want to try to predict using all of your external um, factors. Mm-hmm. Sorry, um, I, I missed it. What, what what is the residual again? So the residual is um, is essentially the error. Mm-hmm. From the the GLM, so you build a, a GLM, yeah. um, which is predicting the frequency of uh, claim against the the policy that you're insuring against the home, mm-hmm. and then um, the residual effect is going to be essentially the error. So so if you predict say a claim frequency of um, let's say three percent, but the, what you actually see in um, in your past training data is actually five percent, then you just have a residual there of point two. Mm-hmm. Um, does it make sense? What, point two. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's just the difference between the actual and predicted. So two so percent. It's, it's yeah. So it's just the error. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So okay. it's just the error. Okay. So, yeah. Yep. And then, so what do you do with this residual? You. Um, you yes. So, so, so then, what we have to do is we have to um, essentially uh, sample all of our exposure and our claims. So the exposure is essentially saying, okay, we've got one policy and it's on risk for one year. Mm-hmm. And the claims are, if any, you know, what, what actual claims have been made for damage to the property. And then what we want to do is we want to create a balanced data set between the target variable of one, yes, the policyholder had a claim, and zero, the policyholder did not have a claim. So for um, tree-based algorithms, when you're building a classification tree, so the outcome is either one or zero, if you have in your training data a very imbalanced data set in terms of the number of rows is you know not approximately equal in terms of the ones and the zeros, then often you'll get a, a result which is highly unreliable. Interesting. Um, so in- I remember this is what you what we talked about uh, last week. This was very interesting, guys. If you're, if you're interested in um, uh, what's the regression, uh, um, random forest and decision trees, this is this is a valuable tip. So. Balanced data sets, right? Sorry yeah, to interrupt. that's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah no, no, no worries. Um, and so when we're building a classification tree for, for the random forest, yes, we want to create a training data set, which is approximately equal for the target variable ones and zeros. So in, the, in insurance, usually you have a very imbalanced data set because you have, say, 2 million policies that you're writing for a year and you only have, let's say, 50,000 claims or so. Um, just for, for say a moderate sized insurer, and so you have a the ratio there of claims has claims to having no claims 
you know, is is something like you know five hundred to one. Yeah, it's 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 very very imbalanced. So you have to balance that up if you choose to use a tree based algorithm. Otherwise, yeah, you, you, Do you know your result why is very is? unreliable. Why are tree algorithms like like so? Uh, um, you know, yeah, picky I think like that, that when yeah, I, I believe it's because when the tree is built, um, if you don't have um, approximately so when it, when each split is determined. Um, if you don't have approximately the same um, observations, you know, in each um, on, on each split, then um, basically you're very, very quickly going to, you know, run out of um, of, of you know data to, in order to segment, um, you know, where you're um, where you're going wrong. So um, I think it's it's part of the the problem in uh, in classification where. For example, if you're trying to predict um, an image, let's, if we think of image recognition and we try to predict, um, you know, which image ha- is cancerous, is a malignant tumor versus non-malignant, mm-hmm. the ratio there is about 99 to 1. And so if you want to get 99% accuracy, you know, you just say, well, you know, everything is, uh, is non-malignant. Everything so is it's, yeah, safe and you, yeah, got Yeah, so, so it just depends, yeah, exactly how you measure that. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's accuracy, but then there's other measures that you can use in terms of how, how good it is. But I believe the answer to your question is when the tree splits, if you have a very imbalanced tree, then it's going to perform very, very poorly on your, on your validation and holdout set. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, and so, and so, so how, how do you make sure that the ones that you're sampling, um, so you, I'm assuming you take like all the ones that you have, you take them all and then you sample an equal number of zeros. How do you make sure yeah. the ones you're sampling are, you know, like you're not biased in your sample. Yeah. So, so the way that you actually sample it is you sample it um, stochastically. So, in other words, the chance of you picking out that one particular record out of your five million exposure records, the chance of doing that needs to be proportional to the residual. So, in other words, um, if you've got, say, a very, very big residual, a big error, yeah. then you want to put more weight onto those observations with, with a very big error. Because they're the ones essentially that are going to provide the predictive power for your, um, yeah, for your geospatial component of, the, of, of your model. So not even random sampling. You sample no, proportional. No, so it's not um, random sampling. So I mean, if it was purely random, you know, there'd be an equal chance. So you know, you just use say one in five million. You've got five million records, yeah. and the chance of picking one out is say you know twenty thousand divided by five million, and then after you do that. You should end up with approximately twenty thousand records after you, you've gone through all the five million records. Yeah. What you want to do is you want to have um, the probability of picking out a record with a large residual being higher. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, it's stochastically um, sampled um, with a with a different probability, well, and that's wh- quite easy to. Why yeah. why is it uh, important to have those um, uh, records with higher residuals? More of them in your model. Um. Uh, yes, so because those are the ones that need to have a greater component of the geospatial um, component um, in, in terms of describing why the model is, is fitting poorly. Mm-hmm. So if you've got something that um, the residual is already very close to zero, um, it should mean that it's being adequately, um, you know, it's been adequately explained by all of those ordinary policy characteristics already. Mm. So in other words, it, you know, there, there's nothing left to explain in ah, terms okay, of gotcha. the the geospatial component. The geospatial component there is approximately, um, you know, th- there's nothing significant about it, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. In, in yeah. those particular records with the low residual. Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So basically, you're you're breaking up your modeling process into two stages. First, you have the ordinary model, and then you're looking. All right, how can I make this even more powerful? What else do I have? Oh, I have this geospatial information. I know their address. I know where they live. I can model certain things there and, you know, add a ton more new features. How do I do this wisely? Which records actually need this modeling? What kind of, what kind of like, um, records have the higher residuals, meaning that they're predicted poorly at the moment? How about we augment the model with this geospatial component? Is that, is that about right? Yes, that's that's exactly right. And the advantage of doing that, um, as opposed to just going straight into, say, random forest and throwing everything into random forest, is that from an implementation perspective, it's quite difficult for legacy systems 
to be able to say things like, um, you know, I have 600, 500, 600 um, predictors here, which, and there's um, each predictor is potentially different for each individual address in the country. Yeah. And so in, in Australia, we have, say, approximately 10 million addresses. Um, you know, that's just a lot of data. Then you're building random forests uh, models on, you know, a, a lot of data with a lot of predictors. With legacy systems, it's difficult to implement that. Often you can only implement at um, an area level, but you still want to incorporate all those X, Y, Z um, coordinates, um, um, geospatial data into your in, in, into your pricing. So that allows you to do that um, um, as opposed to having something which is completely free, has too many free parameters mm. and is, and is a, it's a very uh, complex um, yeah, algorithm to actually implement. Interesting. So, so that... What do you mean by legacy system? Oh, legacy system. I mean, um, often, um, you know, a bit practically, um, I suppose, in the real world, even though we may choose, um, a, you know, a model that is very, very highly predictive and has, you know, many, um, say, thousands of uh, parameters, uh, is a, quite a complex algorithm, and is very, very predictive, pow- powerfully predictive. We might not be able to implement that because the systems that we have to work with, if you work, say, an insurance company, um, the systems they're using are quite old. And so, you know, say maybe on average, say, 20, 25 years old, you have to, um, uh, I suppose, restrict what the model output is saying in order to fit what you can put into your system. No, you mean like um, hardware? Yeah. Uh, oh, no. No, just the, the tables that are in the system. So the ah, tables that are yeah, in the yeah. system okay, gotcha. for, you know, yeah, for most um, insurers may only go to say down to the postcode or zip code level or the, um, you know, the, the suburb level, just depending on exactly what type of insurance that you're talking about. Yeah, um, yeah it, it may, yeah, each, each, each insurer is different. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, very interesting. Breaking a model, the modeling process into two steps. And so what kind of results did you see when you implemented that approach? Yes, so um, it was it was actually really re- really interesting. I mean, the the predictive power of the the random forest is 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 very very strong. But one thing that I I did um, recognize though was it actually requires quite a degree of regularization. Mm-hmm. And so if you if you look at the at the fit um, on the training set compared to the validation um, holdout sets. There's actually a very significant difference, and so whilst it was dramatically more powerful than the previous uh, models had been, um, which was already about five or six years old, um, the, the 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 power, the, the predictive power, uh, was not as good as on the on the training set, and there was actually quite a quite a bit of difference. And so the question for me is, um, you know, um, how much regularization, you know, do, do you need to do in terms of um, you know, fitting uh, and hyperparameter tuning, you know, on, on your cross-validation set. Um, we spent probably um, 50% of the time um, going um, um, on the, you know, the hyperparameter tuning to try to make sure that we we're getting the right mix in terms of the depths of the trees and in terms of how many predictors we were sampling, resampling at, at each node. So the, the random forest has quite a few different hyperparameters and it took quite a bit of experimentation um, in order to try to get to an optimal outcome. Um, but but what we were going from, I mean, it was, it's difficult to compare how good it was because what we were going from was actually yeah was actually a lot more of a, of a simple approach, you know, just pricing at the at the postcode or, or zip code level. So um, we, we were incorporating a lot of new data um, at that point in time. Yeah, mm-hmm. gotcha. And so just. Uh, to confirm we're on the same page, uh, regularization uh, is uh, the process of making sure that your model is not overfitting to the training data. Is that right? Yeah, yes, that's correct. Yeah, so so when you fit the model to the training data and you analyze the results, obviously it's almost always very, very good, um, very highly predictive. And then when you move on to a test or, or holdout um, sample, which is um, completely separate, completely independent of your training data, you then see usually see a relatively large drop in your um, in, in you know in your predictive power, and that's I think um, yeah that's definitely the case um, in insurance. I think that's the case in probably most fields of data science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
to- totally, totally agree with that. And I, I've seen that plenty, especially like in uh, financial predictions. You know, you can oh, create, yeah. a, create a really cool model for you know time to, for a time series for stocks or for you know currency rates and so on. It looks perfect on your training data, and then bam, in real life, completely different story. Mm. Um, tell us a bit more. How how did you regularize this uh, this in this particular scenario? Yes, yeah, so. So using the random forest, we actually split um, each and every um, each and every household in the country. We split into um, fifty different, um, basically fifty different categories, from the highest risk to the lowest risk. Uh-huh. And so what we did is we we analysed what the relative increase was in the claim frequency for each of those bins one to fifty. So that each of the bins one to fifty was essentially the score or the prediction that came out of the Random forest uh, model, uh-huh. um, but the, it was then put into these, um, in, yeah, in, into these different categories. Um, and so, what what we um, what we looked at there's actually a formula. I think um, it may be from one of uh, Leo Bryman's papers. Uh, I, I'm not, yeah, I forget exactly what the paper is called. But we look, had a look in the paper, and there is actually a shrinkage factor. I think he refers to it as a shrinkage factor in terms of reducing the gradient of that. Um, slope that comes out of the random forest output. And it's, um, I believe it's a function of how many predictors that you have. Um, yeah, maybe something like one on square root n, but there, there's a particular factor that he uses in order to shrink the, the effect of, um, the random forest predictions. What do you mean by shrinking the effect of random forest? So, um, so, when you categorize all of the random forest output from um, highest risk to lowest risk, each of the increase in the categories may result in, say, for example, a two and a half or say a three percent increase in risk from an insurance perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, that two and a half or three percent is based on the training data, mm-hmm. but in the test or the validation data, it's going to be significantly less than that. Mm-hmm. So um, the question is. Using what formula or using what method um, would you use in terms of trying to um, uh, you reduce that effect from say two and a half percent down to say one point seven five percent or whatever it might be, um, so that on the cross validation and the and the test set you get a consistent result. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. Okay, cool. Sounds like a, a very involved project and. Uh... Yeah. Um, did the model eventually go live, get rolled out? Yes. Yes, it did. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think that in, in Australia, um, we do actually have, I think most insurers now in, uh, in home insurance, this is actually priced by the exact latitude, longitude, um, elevation of the property. Um, um, so yeah. So when you get actually get a quote, get a price, you jump on the web and you get a quote. They will actually verify your precise address against the um, postal address file, um, and and so um, and, and and so yeah. So they all have that. Most of them have that capability now, apart from the a couple of the smaller ones. Yes. Nice, nice. Yeah. So were were you like the first pioneer in this space, or were many insurers developing similar models at the same time? Um, so I believe the company that I worked for at the time was the very first in Australia. I'm, I'm quite certain of that, but it's not, it's definitely not my credit. I was, uh, mentored by, um, yeah, an actuary who was, uh, yeah, very senior and, uh, he was a fantastic uh, mentor. So no, I don't, I don't deserve any of the credit. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yes, yeah, no, I still have a good relationship with him. So I'm very thankful for him. Yes. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Well, thank you very much for that case study. I think it was very involved and. I'm sure our listeners are enjoying going through this uh, very, very cool project of you know, actuarial. And in fact, it actually feels like a data science project, you know, like because we didn't go into the regulatory components and things like that. But the nature of the work itself def- definitely feels a lot like uh, data science itself. What, what would you say to like those listening who um, have never done geospatial before? Because I've I've played around with geospatial. I've done I think one or two, maybe two, no, two or three projects when I was in Deloitte, I did um, on the geospatial analytics. Very interesting stuff. There's really cool tools like uh, Pathfinder, Esri, um, so some other ones like uh, Pitney Bowes. You can use that for um, uh, 
I think it's like uh, dealing with postcodes and stuff like that. And then uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics for people in Australia is really, really cool in that sense. Um, yeah, and in fact, at Super Data Science, we don't yet have a course on geospatial. And I've been itching to create one because I find that that topic very interesting. What would your comments be to those who are in data science or thinking of getting into data science, but have never considered geospatial analytics as you know a career path per se? What would you say to them? Um, what what I would say is I think that um, the you know the prevalence of data these days in in terms of uh, geospatial is is just exploding all the time. And if you think about where people live and where businesses are uh, are located, there's a very high degree of correlation between you know, yourself and your neighbor and the business that is, you know, five doors up from you. Um, and you all share things in common because that you've got that, um, spatial correlation. You can infer a lot of different things about the people who live there, the types of products they like to buy, um, how risk averse they are, um, you know, where they like to go on a holiday. And that opens up all sorts of opportunities in terms of, you know, predictive marketing. Um, predictive advertising, um, and, and, you know, there's just a lot of different applications for geospatial. And I mean, you know, things like natural disasters, um, because, you know, Kirill, where we live in Queensland, Queensland has had a, a very uh, large share of, uh, Australia's natural disasters over the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. I mean, even things like, um, you know, helping inform people of when, you know, a cyclone or a bushfire or a flood is, is, you know, is, is about to occur. Um, you know, there's just so many possibilities with with geospatial, and so I think that um, yeah, because we're all going to be you know living on the earth, and you know um, we all share so many things in common. I think that definitely um, it, it it's it's going to be um, a very significant um, piece of um, I suppose uh, discipline of data science for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that those would, would would be my thoughts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um that's that's really that's really good advice and I think yeah you're right just special can be used for some very noble causes. I was actually thinking about this funny enough even before we met I was thinking about just special. Uh my dad and I went on a bicycle ride from Gold Coast to Brisbane and then from Brisbane to Gold Coast and like I was tracking my ride uh with uh, an app and and got me thinking about like what's applications of data of uh, geospatial can i think of in data science and i thought of three and like let me know if you agree or maybe like maybe you can add some to that so the first one would be what you described today uh, where you can and like uh, probably one of the most valuable applications of geospatial is when you can use that data whether this address postcode mesh block whatever it is uh sa1 sla level and use that to add geodemographic segmentation to your data set. So basically extract things like affluence of the population in that area, um, you know, general average ages, average income, um, and, and any other kind of information. Like you say, maybe you might be able to, you have a proprietary data set on where people like to go on holidays based on where they live. So the, all that's like a lot of that data can be purchased. It's, a lot of it is proprietary and you can find, you know, very interesting things. Uh, there was a company we were talking about, uh, what, what's it called that sell proprietary data around, you know, geospatial? Uh, um... Exxon or something, not Exxon. It's completely out of there. Not, not the same. Well, um, I, yeah, so in the in a previous workplace we use Tactician One. Tactician One is um just does all the, the GIS um and holds all the um you know the draws all the polygons for the areas, etc. Um has has all the maps there. Um yeah. Tactician One oh, forget the I think it was Pathfinders was the Pathfinders. was the company. No, was there's, the com- there's like a big uh, oh if I remember it I'll 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 say it on the podcast. There's a big Big company that actually, once you've already done all of that modeling and you know the XYZs or, you know, the, the postcodes, they tell you, all right, people in this area, they have this type of affluence. The, these are the, the gender split. This is the age split. You, you know what I'm talking about? They like a very big company and like they, they purchased an Australian company in that space. Anyway, we're, if anyone of us remembers it, we'll mention it. Um, so basically augmenting your data set with geodemographic data to add new features that you can inc- 
include in your modeling, extremely, extremely powerful uh, application of geospatial. Uh, application number two that I can think of is a drive time analysis. So this is very important, especially for businesses like local businesses, where you might think you are 20 kilometers away from your customer. But really, that's just, you know, you plotting, you know, like you calculating the Earth distance according to planet Earth, how far away you are. But really, customers get to you by different means, whether it's walking, public transport, driving. And around drive time analysis, you might think you're 20 kilometers away, but how long does it take your customer to get to you? Based on the roads, it might take them, I don't know, it might take them 20 minutes, it might take them 40 minutes, it might take them 10 minutes to get to you. And so very important. So like when when a business does like uh, like a, ca- a, a capture segment of its customers, like, uh, all right, how, what's the capture area for our customers? Like I've seen situations where a business says, all right, we're here in the middle and we're going to draw a 20 kilometer radius around us. Well, it's not actually a radius. You got to do drive time analysis and see, you know, it's, it's going to be like a, uh, it's going to be a shape which is stretched out along highways and then it's contracted where there's less roads because people can get to you. It's faster for them to get to you through a highway. So therefore they can travel further. Yeah, and, that's a really good point. So to be a contour map or a, or a kind of a heat map would be, a, you know, a couple of ways to, I suppose, illustrate that and the, you know, the shape of the contours or mm. the heat map would, would change, you know, for peak hour versus, you know, for weekends, uh, et cetera, could, could change over yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. And imagine how important that is if you're like a business and you're placing a second store, like you say, you're a Bunnings in Australia, it's a hardware store and you're placing a second store, you know, like how, where are you going to place it? So on one hand, you service your customers, you are, and they don't go to competitors. On the other hand, you're not cannibalizing your own demand for the previous store, right? You don't want to be servicing two areas with two, one area with two stores. So yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Extremely mm. powerful application. And you can only do that through geospatial. And uh, geospatial analytics application number three that I thought of was um, mapping of routes. So like, for instance, my dad and I were riding bicycles. It'd be really cool to map our, you know, what, what uh, routes did we take? How did we go? You know, which turns did we take and things like that. And yeah, so th- that's, uh, it's, it's less obvious when that can be useful, but it can be useful in, you know, logistics, things like how are you delivering stuff to your customers? Yeah, that's right. And I think it'd be also useful for things like uh, traffic planning, you know, so when the authorities make a decision to, say, widen a road from one lane each side to, say, two lanes each side, and, you know, they're going to be spending $50 million to, to widen this road, they should be able to say, okay, this is, you know, how many people are going to use it, and these are the alternative routes, so people who don't use this road, is there an easy detour, so, you know, it's, it's you know, and how, how, how worth it is that? And I think that... um also, there's a little bit of an overlap with, say, telematics here as well, because what you're talking about there with, say, um, optimizing logistics or optimizing, say, fleets of um, cars or, or, or trucks, let's say, um, telematics can be very, very helpful for that because telematics can tell you, you know, if you own a fleet of, say, 300 cars um, or, 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 say, delivery vans, you know where each one is at all times and you know exactly the route they're taking and exactly the average speed over you know each hour and each day and so you can then plan your fleet and all of your timetables and your routing etc and your scheduling driver scheduling in order to minimize fatigue in order to minimize you know overall travel times which you know helps with safety helps with insurance premiums because you're going to have less accidents if people are less fatigued all that kind of stuff so i think that um yeah it has a it has a bit of an overlap there with telematics as well um and uh to your point i have like there's a fantastic example that uh my brother actually mentioned to me um so i just found it online i'll read it out about ups ups trucks actually uh well ups have designed um their vehicle routing system in a way to eliminate left-hand turns as much as possible so if you look at ups trucks they only that's uh the united states postal service so they only turn right i think uh, only 10% of their turns are left. And in fact, they're not allowed to turn left. They will always turn right on a traffic light. And, and in the US, they drive on the other side of the road to us. So you can turn right on a traffic light, even without waiting for a green signal. You just turn right. when Even when it's red, you can turn right. 
And as a result, the company claims it uses 10 million gallons less fuel, emits 20,000 <laughs> tons less carbon dioxide, and delivers 350,000 more packages every year. How crazy is that? And <laughs> they were able to cut the number of trucks they use by 1,100, bringing the company's total distance traveled by 28.5 million miles. How crazy wow. is that? Even though they're also <laughs> Well, that's just incredible, isn't it? That's yeah, just, there you yeah, go. Unbelievable. In action. Yeah. <laughs> that is extremely, extremely cool. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of like three main applications of uh, geospatial that I, I can kind of think of. Would you agree? Would you think there's anything else like from your experience that maybe can be added to that list? Um, yeah, I, I can't think of anything um, at, at the moment, but I, I think that because there is so much data um, that's that's related to you know where a person lives and where they drive, where they work, etc. Um, yeah, I think you you are throwing away a lot of potential knowledge and potential power if you yeah if you don't incorporate that into um, you know your into your business models and into whatever initiative it, it, it you know that you have um, in either government or in business. If you're ignoring that, then you know there's a lot of lost opportunity there. So um, I can't think of any additional applications um, at, at the moment, but um, I do know that telematics, in in particular, is starting to um, is starting to take off in in somewhat of a of a bigger way in this country, and um, I think it's um, Australia's a little bit behind um, in terms of using um, things like telematics, um, not just for logistics and trucks, but also for say light vehicles as well. Um, and yeah, Australia is usually a little bit of a late adopter when it comes to, um, those types of technologies. Um, so, um, but I think it's already, um, reaping great rewards in, in, in Europe and the US. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll get there. <laughs> as with everything. We're finally starting to get good internet in Australia, which I'm, I'm very <laughs> happy about. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Um, well, Dominic, this kind of like actually brings us to, the end of the podcast there were so many other things i wanted to talk about as well like you know ability and statistics you're an expert in that stuff maybe maybe we'll have another session later on but on that note i really wanted to thank you for uh, coming on the show and you know sharing all your insights with us it's it's been a huge pleasure and a lot of fun to have you on the show uh thanks kirill thanks very much um yeah i really appreciate your the invitation and uh yeah ha happy to have a chat whenever whenever you like so thanks awesome very much. awesome thanks and um, before you go, what's the what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch and uh, maybe connect with you? Like maybe they have some follow up questions or just follow your career. Um, yeah, so I think that if they just um, send me a message through LinkedIn, um, that would probably be the the best way, the easiest way to to contact me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, so just shoot me a message there, um, and or, or, or grab my email from from LinkedIn as well. That's fine as well. Awesome. Okay. Cool. And um, we'll share that in the show notes for everybody listening. And one more question I have for you: What's a book that you can recommend to our listeners to help them in their career? Yes. So that's an interesting question, and I suppose my my view on on books and data science is that. Um, I think data science is a discipline where the more you get your hands dirty, the more you'll learn. And, the, you know, you have to use a lot of trial and error um, in terms of trying different approaches, trying to fit different models, seeing what works and seeing what doesn't work. Um, and so I suppose I haven't come across a book that I can say, you know, I think that is, you know, that one in particular is fantastic. I actually prefer to read, um, you know, the shorter articles and the shorter um, research papers um, rather than you know a, a textbook on data science and so um, one that I've used and applied uh, a research paper I've used and applied um, heavily in the past has been on convex optimization mm -hmm. and so the the title of that one that research paper was convex optimization a new approach to common challenges um, and so that was written by 20 in 2010 um, and that was written for the Institute of um, Actuaries uh, Conference, which was being held on the Gold Coast. <laughs> um, and so that's um, Dmitry Semenovich, Yang Kai, and Ian Heppel are the three authors um, of that one. Um, so, yeah, no, so not trying to plug fellow actuaries at all. Um, yeah. But um, that, that's one in particular that I, I thought was good because um, convex optimization is essentially what it is, is um, 
it's a method to solve um, a particular objective function or a, or a particular loss function subject to um, constraints um, where your objective function um, is, is convex. Um, and so you can have quite um, a broad array of different functions within uh, and still ensure that the, the function is convex. Um, and essentially, so that's what it is. It's, it's a solver. And one of the applications I actually used it in um, was when um, an alternative to the random forest or a competitor to the random forest model that I built was to say each and every single house is its own um, you know, spatial parameter, gets its own spatial parameter in the generalized linear model. Mm -hmm. And so what you would then have is a massively over-parameterized model which you can still fit, you can still force it to converge as long as you have the correct penalization and regularization terms within your objective function. So that's probably getting a little bit deep mathematically. So for the people who like the maths component of data science, um, um, they probably would have gotten that. But for, for some people who aren't all that familiar with the, the mathematical concept of of um, optimization that that might have been um, a bit too much, but basically you can force um, the the model to to converge and for the convex um, optimizer to find the minimum of the loss function subject mm -hmm. to the restraints constraints that you have um, as long as you have the correct penalty terms in there. So the penalty terms are you've got ordinary regularization. Which you you know same as you'd have in in any model, same as same as you have in the neural network, um, and you've also got an additional term in there which performs spatial smoothing. So in other words, you're going to have an additional penalty for um, how different the risk is um, um, relative to your neighbour. So what it looks at is it looks at the pairwise distances of each of the properties. And says, if you're very close, I'm going to penalize you a lot um, in terms of having a different parameter. And if you're far away, then, you know, there is going to be no penalty term there. So mm. it's, it's, it's essentially um, inversely proportional to the square of the distance um, between each of the pairwise, each of the properties that you've got. And so it's, a, it's, it's quite a large, um, yes, it's quite a large matrix if you think about it. But you, but you can actually solve the problem through that alternative technique as well. But it's a very, very general solver, which has applications in engineering um, as well as insurance. It has very broad applications. Wow. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Thank you. I'm sure, I'm sure you're going to get lots of follow-up questions from that. Um, but I wanted to say that I, I completely see your point when we're creating courses. I go through a ton of research papers and it's so inspiring to be on the, um, cutting edge of what's happening in the world in that technology that you're using. It's, it's also important to know, you know, what is, for instance, in AI, what is the A3C algorithm or what is, uh, what is the new development in the augmented random search or, or whatever else? Um, evolution strategies, um, genetic algorithm, things, things that you might, even if you don't use exactly the way they are described per se, you just see how people think and uh, it's something new, something fresh. It's always, it's always great. So thank you very much for that. And uh, could you repeat the name of the paper again, please? Ah, uh, yes. Okay. So it's called, um, convex optimization, a new approach to common challenges. Um, and the authors are Dmitry Semenovich. Yang Kai and Ian Heppel, and that was um, from 2010, and it's published by the Institute of Actuaries of Australia. Awesome. All right. Perfect. Well, on that note, once again, thank you so much, Dominic. Great pleasure. Great fun chatting. Yeah, you too, Kirill. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was Dominic Rowe, senior underwriter at Covermore and also a professional actuary. I hope you enjoyed this chat as much as I did. And as promised at the start, this was a podcast like no other where we dove deep into the different models that uh, Dominic was using or the way he built this model, which combined two separate models in one. Uh, my favorite part was probably the way Dominic explained a balanced data set and why it's important 
to perform that stochastic sampling that he was talking about. That was something very insightful for me and I personally learned some new things on this podcast and I hope you did too. On that note, you can get all of the show notes for this episode as usual at the Super Data Science website. And this episode is number 243, so the URL would be www.superdatascience.com slash 243. That's superdatascience.com slash 243. And there you can get all the show notes, that uh, all the materials that we mentioned in the show, plus a URL to Dominic's LinkedIn. So make sure to connect with him. Ask him any questions that you might have about actuarial sciences or any of his modeling that uh, he shared, his case study that he shared here. And in general, Dominic is a great connection to have in your network. Once again, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, then please go to iTunes or wherever you're listening to these episodes and leave us a review, leave us a rating and write what you feel about this podcast. I would highly appreciate it. I read them all, I go on there and I read all those reviews because I really value your feedback and it inspires me when you are inspired. Inspired us, inspires us all at Super Data Science when you're inspired. So make sure to let us know and let the world know how you feel about the Super Data Science podcast. On that note, thank you so much for being here today. I look forward to seeing you back here next time. And until then, happy analyzing. <laughs>